G'day everyone, this is B. Jemine, aka The Terrible Aussie, and before we get to the latest episode of the podcast, there's something I need to address beforehand. Now, after when we recorded this episode of the show, like literally as soon as we were done, the news broke that David M.G., the actor who played Stephen in the original 1978 version of Dawn of the Dead, had passed away. Since this episode of the show is dedicated to the original 78 classic, I want to dedicate this episode in memory of the late, great David M.G., and I also want to send my heartfelt love, condolences, and prayers to the family and friends of David M.G. as well. Even though he's no longer with us anymore, he was a great actor who delivered a truly amazing performance in this film. And because of that, his legacy will live on for generations to come among horror fans and also moviegoers. R.I.P. David M.G. We will miss you deeply. And now, on to the show. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it! You're ignorant! They're coming for you, Barbara. Stop it! You're acting like a child! They're coming for you! Look! There comes one of them now! Welcome to Bead vs. the Living Dead, the podcast where your host, Bead the Terrible Aussie Jemine, explores the remakes, re-edits, reimaginings, homages, and unofficial follow-ups to George A. Romero's classic 1968 horror film, Night of the Living Dead. This is the latest disclosure in a report from National Civil Defense Headquarters in Washington. It has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. A widespread investigation of reports from funeral homes, morgues, and hospitals has concluded that the unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. This podcast contains coarse language, mature discussions, and plot spoilers. Listener discretion is advised. G'day everyone, this is Benjamin, aka The Terrible Aussie, and welcome to episode 29 and the first for 2024 of Bean vs. The Living Dead, the podcast where I dissect every remake, re-edit, reimagining, homage, spoof, artificial follow-up, and so much more. Or in this case, for this year, sequels to George A. Romero's 1968 horror classic, Night of the Living Dead. Yep, that's right, everyone. It's a brand new year. And this is the first episode for the year, and I'm very excited for what this year is going to bring with the podcast. And it's going to be a bit slightly different this year as well, because even though, yes, we're still going to be tackling all things Night of the Living Dead, we're going to take a bit of a detour and a look at one of the official sequels to the original classic, and which, of course, is the 1978 film Dawn of the Dead by George A. Romero. So we're going to be looking at all things from that film this year, in between everything else from Night of the Living Dead. And I'm very excited for the year ahead. But before we get into talking about the film, I have not one, not two, but three very special guests who are joining me today. And they are all returning guests who are coming back to make their first appearances for 2024. And first up, of course, is my co-host of the many podcasts over on the Super Network, and as well as the host of her own show, after Dark with Super Marcy, and that, of course, is Super Marcy. Hello, Marcy. How are you? Hello, hello. Thank you for having me back, and I'm doing very well. Happy to be here to talk about this movie today. 
Indeed, indeed. Well, I'm happy that you're back as well, Marcy. It has been a little while because the last time you were on was Return of the Living Dead 3. So I'm very excited that you're back on the show to start off the new year because let's just face it, Marcy, like we're pretty much joined at the hip and it would only make sense if I'm doing the first episode of something each year, you need to be on it. Yeah, pretty much. That's just how we roll. Exactly, exactly. But we're not alone on this podcast. We're also joined by a very special guest who is making, I believe, maybe his 10th appearance on this show. Possibly, maybe. I've lost count at this point. But he is also a contributor to the Super Network via writing reviews to your website, Marcy, at supermarcy.com. And that, of course, is the one and only Marcus Wilter. Hello, Marcus, and welcome back again to the show. I believe that I am on my ninth appearance. My oh, okay. Friend. See, 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 Marcus, <laughs> I, I've lost track of time in terms of how many guest appearances you're on. You've been on more episodes than maybe I have. I mean, I've lost all count, but I'm very glad that you're back. And also back after appearing on the last episodes of last year, which, of course, when we talked about the indie film, The Day of the Living Dead. And yeah, that was a you know very fun episode to work with you on, and I'm very glad to be back on here once again with you and Marcy, you know, you lovely people, so thank you so much for having me back on once again. My God, I just... Uh, I just keep coming back. I don't know. You, you, you're, you're too good, man. You're too good. I just, it, I, I can't stay away. <laughs> indeed, indeed, indeed. <laughs> well, I love having you here on the show, Marcus, and I love having everyone who's on this episode here as well, including our third and final guest for the show, who is making his return after appearing on the episode in which we talked about the classic 1985 horror comedy, Return of the Living Dead. And that, of course, is the host of the podcast, Half Price Horror, John Seavey. Hello, John. Welcome back to the show. Well, thank you for having me back. And, you know, I mean, obviously, this one is even going to be a more light, more cheerful, and more fun movie than Return of the Living Dead. So, you know, we'll have plenty to talk about in this frothy comedy fest. Indeed, indeed. Because, you know, John, at the end of the day, you know what Return of the Living Dead needed? More pie fights, just saying. <laughs> Which we will uh, talk about momentarily. Uh, so we might as well get straight to it and talk about the official sequel to Night of the Living Dead, which, of course, is the 1978 film Dawn of the Dead. In 1968, George Romero brought us Night of the Living Dead. It became the classic horror film of its time. Not that room, not that room! Now, George Romero brings us the most intensely shocking motion picture experience for all times. It gets up and kills. The people it kills get up and kill. This situation must be controlled before it's too late. They are multiplying too rapidly. Dawn of the Dead. Meet me on the roof at 9 o'clock. Get out. I don't believe We're it. We're going to get out in the chopper. We've got to survive. Somebody's got to survive. They kill for one reason. They kill for food. They eat their victims. Imagine, if you will, that something has gone terribly wrong. Shoot it, man. Now, accept the fact that there's no escaping the horrible consequences. George Romero brings back the dead. Night of the Living Dead has ended. Dawn of the Dead is here. 
We must not be lulled by the concept that these are our family members or our friends. They are not. They will not respond to such emotions. Operator dead. Post abandoned. We may never get out of the It's everywhere. What the hell is it? Looks like a shopping center, one of those big indoor malls. What are they doing? Why do they come here? Some kind of instinct, memory, what they used to do. This was an important place in their lives. What is it? We've got a war. We have spawned our own savagery. Soon, it will consume us all. It is a horrible, hauntingly accurate vision of the mindless excesses of a society gone mad. They must be destroyed on sight! When there is no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. We are down to the line, folks. We are down to the line. Dawn of the Dead. Which, of course, was written and directed by George A. Romero. And this film stars David M.G., Ken Forey, Scott Rittiger, and if I butchered your last name, please forgive me, and Galen Ross. And the plot summary for this film, which I am reading off IMDb, is... During an escalating zombie epidemic, two Philadelphia SWAT members, a traffic reporter and his TV executive girlfriend, seek refuge in a secluded shopping mall. It's fair to say that the original 1978 version, Dawn of the Dead, is just as beloved and is just as a landmark of achievement as the original Night of the Living Dead was. And some even have considered this not only just one of the greatest sequels ever made, but also some have even considered this one even superior to the original Night of the Living Dead as well. So there's a lot of great things about this film and so much history behind it. I mean, it is a landmark in horror cinema in its own way, but I'm kind of curious to hear what my guests think of it overall. So Marcy, tell us your initial thoughts on Dawn of the Dead, but also... Uh, tell us about the first time you saw this movie as well. Yeah, so I discovered Dawn of the Dead, I believe it would have been in my high school years and renting horror from the video store and I was aware of the movie and it was one I wanted to see and I do remember my first watch was just so intense and I had seen Night of the Living Dead at that point. I had kind of heard this was like a lot gorier and stuff like that and it certainly didn't let me down at all but I think it was the human characters the story that just really captured me and it's an absolutely stunning film to look at and you know my most recent rewatch, like nothing changes with Dawn of the Dead for me it's still like a perfect sort of film it's got great pacing you're invested early on you don't need to have seen night of the living dead to get invested into this zombie story but it certainly helps to have seen night of the living dead but i think the point was it doesn't matter in one way or another it does deliver on gore it delivers on terror and there's some truly heartbreaking moments in this film it 
kind of has a little bit of everything and it, it really lulls you into a false sense of security and then it just whips that right away and it, it's the like subtext is feels as relevant then as it does now and I think that's kind of the beauty of Romero when he puts in a lot of these themes and subtext in his films they just somehow still remain relevant because humans don't change so yeah my initial thoughts I don't want to keep it too long so yeah now Marcus tell us about the first time you saw the original Dawn of the Dead and as well as your initial thoughts of it but having read one of your posts yesterday uh, I think you had something quite shocking to tell us about that as well yeah I actually thought that I have you know I had seen this movie before but turns out I, I actually haven't I uh had this weird kind of brain fart or aneurysm or whatever you want to call it. And I had honestly thought that I had seen Dawn of the Dead before, but turns out I haven't. And everything that I, you know, remember from it is like just stuff that's been referenced like throughout the years. And, you know, of course the, you know, the remake by, uh, by uh, Zack Snyder and, you know, Day of the Dead. So <laughs> it's wild. Like as soon as, you know, we get to certain parts in this film, like it just hit me like a ton of bricks. It's like, yeah, I've never seen this before. I have no idea what to contribute to that. I mean, the only thing I can think of, you know, as a, you know, wonderful woman named B once told me, you know, horror as a genre is like so like hugely ingrained, you know, in our society and in media and everything like that with so much exposure to projects and content. You know, it's almost like this process of osmosis or deja vu. The, the mind is such a weird, beastly thing when it comes to perception, because I honestly thought I saw this, <laughs> but no. <laughs> so I, you know, have now rectified that egregious error. And um, to be honest with you, like talk a lot about you, you have, I have, a lot of people have you know, about, you know, Night of the Living Dead mm. and how you know, that was like the creation of a genre, you know, it's a catalyst, it's the originator, you know, so many like grandiose like elements of horror and cinema, you know, that we still witness today, you know, and um, but unsurprisingly, you know, after watching this film, not that I didn't think so before, but now it's like cemented, you know, Romero has really like expanded or he did expand on, you know, what he created with the first film, you know, with this one, because Don really does live up to its namesake from the first to the final image. You know, I understood how this is not only one of the most influential films of all time, but how it's so like beloved by others, you know, and for like millions of like granted, it's it's a little bit of, uh, you know, a product of its, product of its time, but it still remains like very monstrously, you know, uh, atmospheric, thanks to, you know, Romero's direction, you know, it was very uncompromising, you know, like I said, broad and stylatory uh, storytelling. It's very effective still without nearing any kind of, you know, cheapness, you know, it actually has a lot of levity to it, but it still keeps that very encompassing dread, you know, uh, with the violence being very thick, graphic, foreboding. You know, he really, really leveled up with this. And, you know, from the original film, like so much so, like, as Marcy said, you know, it it could be its own standalone film, you know, as well as being a sequel, because a lot of its concepts, you know, its nuances, its themes, commentaries different from the original, but yet still authentic and layered and impactful. 
we still feel this to you know today even with that like nostalgia and status of it being like embedded through it it this is still a very well made great film with something worthwhile to say and a lot of great imagery a lot of graphic fun stuff and i am so glad i finally watched this <laughs> <laughs> well i'm glad that you finally watched it as well Marcus. It's, it's kind of like a mandela effect for you like uh with your experience that's exactly what film. i was thinking it's like a mandela effect or something <laughs> <laughs> but but you're right though uh, you know it's kind of like before i saw the film psycho for the first time it's like that film is so ingrained in pop culture where every single scene has either been referenced or parodied in all different types of media, it feels like you've already seen the movie even before you actually sat down and watched the film. So I could definitely see why <laughs> this whole experience has been a very odd one for you, Marcus, but it's also been an interesting one to hear somebody who had never seen the film until now and hear their thoughts on it. Cause with most horror fans, they would have seen this all very, very much a long time ago. For I know they're, they're going to take my car away. <laughs> i'm pretty sure we won't be able to do that marcus at least not on this show anyways but uh john your your thoughts on uh the original dawn of the dead and also do you remember the first time you saw this film as well well i was gonna say it's funny that you went to psycho when really you could say that about night of the living dead well that too that yes. is a movie yeah that has been referenced so many times that everyone knows it even if they've never seen it but no, I absolutely remember my first time seeing this. I read about it in Stephen King's book, Dance Macabre, which is, it's a, it's, it is a great book for anybody who wants to know anything about horror movies from about the 50s to the 80s. But then it was not really easy to find on VHS or DVD for a long time until the remake came out and they put out this gorgeous box set with the American cut and the Ar uh, Argento cut and the Khan cut. And I think there was even a fourth cut that I don't even know how they assembled it, maybe from the work print or something. Mm. And so I finally got the chance to sit down and watch it. And then I had a kid and I didn't think I'd be watching horror movies much anymore, even though I loved the movie. So I sold it. Oh, I teased a heartbreaker before we started the episode. And that's it. That amazing, gorgeous four disc set is off with someone else now. I'm shedding uh, a tear right now. That's it's very sad. Oh, my goodness. But, but I do have a, a nice disc with the theatrical cut. And yeah. uh, I watched it again this morning. And it's a movie that still holds up. I mean, it's certainly of its time. But even that is kind of fascinating to watch when they're going through all these shops and you're looking at the old J.C. Penney's logo from 1978 and seeing all of these stores that don't even exist anymore because the world has moved on and it's like you've got this little time capsule of what retail was like in the 1970s. The movie itself, I mean, you know, if every low-budget filmmaker who makes a zombie movie is imitating Night of the Living Dead... Everybody who has the money to scrape together to be ambitious is doing Dawn of the Dead. This is this is the high scale version of Night where, you know, you've got the big epic scope and you've got the zombie apocalypse. This is the zombie apocalypse movie. And you've got Tom Savini just throwing in all of the effects that would make his whole career. And it is just it's an 
epic, glorious salute to all of these things that Romero was trying to do. And it's also, it's a look at 70s, uh, the the Me Too, or the not Me Too, excuse me, the Me Decade, mm-hmm. uh, you know, where people were all obsessed with materialism and capital, you know, and capitalism and conspicuous consumption. It's a look at the way everyone was turning inward. And it's a look at, at the way that we were all being destroyed by capitalism in ways that really feel more insightful than ever. I know when I covered this movie in 2021 for my podcast, everything hit so much harder in the wake of COVID. You know, when you've got all of these guys saying, I don't even know if this is a real thing or not. You're like, okay, tell it to Joe Rogan, buddy. Mm, Exactly. Exactly. Uh, My experience with the original Dawn of the Dead is an interesting one because I actually saw the remake first before I even saw the original. So, but like you say, John, it was only really once the remake hit, that's when the original started to become much more readily available. Because I remember, because it was a film that I'd been wanting to see for quite a long time, but it was very hard to get your hands on it because none of the video stores I went to had this film on the shelf. So it was a hard film to track down. So but I was very determined if I ever did find it, I would get it. And then one day randomly gone to a shopping mall, ironically, um, <laughs> I went into a video game store and I was just wandering around looking at all the games, seeing what I wanted to get. And they had a little DVD section that had a couple of movies, mostly anime and a few other things. And I looked down and I discovered they had a copy of Dawn of the Dead on the shelf and as soon as i saw it i'm like i need to get this so i immediately grabbed it and bought it and as soon as i got back home i immediately watched it and i absolutely loved it and that would have been like at least about 20 years ago so 20 years later as you would expect i definitely still love this movie having rewatched it again in prep for this episode it just cements just my love for it I always go back and forth, which one do I prefer, Night or Dawn? But I mean, they're both very different films that even though, yes, they're both made by George A. Romero, they both have uh, zombies in them and they both explore different types of themes within their stories. But like you have already said, there's definitely much more of an ambitiousness with Dawn of the Dead and a much more grander scale to make this feel more like an apocalyptic story. It, to me, it's kind of hard to kind of see which one's better because they're both fantastic in their own ways. And you can, but at the same time, though, you can see why a lot of genre filmmakers of this today are more influenced by this film than the original. Not to say that they aren't, but whenever you talk to horror filmmakers, like what kind of horror films were their inspiration for this one? Most of them particularly just cite dawn of the dead like especially with edgar wright and simon Pegg saying that in regards to short of the dead and few other films as well and when you watch it it's hard not to understand why because it uh it has some great characters it has incredibly memorable moments and it's also and i keep forgetting this every time i sit down to watch it it's like it actually has legit intense sequences that even I was on the edge of my seat <laughs> in this uh, recent rewatch of it, but it's just a fantastic film through and through. And I actually had an opportunity 
early last year to see this film on the big screen in 3D, I might add. And since that film in 3D was actually a surprisingly great experience because the 3D actually makes the film even more immersive as a whole. And also, this is one of those movies that no matter which format this movie comes out in, I always seem to buy another copy <laughs> of this film. So I got the DVD. Then, of course, I got that free four-disc Ultimate Edition set that you mentioned, John. I got that. And then later on, I got the Umbrella Blu-ray of this, which was only the theatrical cut. And then I got the Italian Blu-ray set that actually had the, the 3D version in it and also had... Uh, the 4K restoration, and then I got the Second Sight big box set, which had all the big major restorations on that as well. And I, I'm kind of even tempted to get the 4K set as well. So this is a movie that in my collection, it seems like I'm always updating the format of this film. <laughs> and there's a good reason for that, because it's just an absolutely fantastic film. We might as well... Oh, go ahead, John. You know that 3D version is why we don't get it streaming, right? Yeah, I think that is, uh, there's a reason why this film seems to be available in other parts of the world rather than the US. And it's all because of the film's producer, uh, Richard Rubenstein, but that's a whole <laughs> different section we will definitely get into because he mainly kind of controls the rights of the film, particularly in the US. That's why this film is just so hard to find and even get in the United States at the moment. And somehow it's much more easier and accessible to get it, uh, the UK version, which of course is the the amazing Second Sight uh, set that they have there. But, uh, <laughs> but we might as well get, we'll talk more about that in a bit, but we'll get straight to the movie at hand by recapping the plot of this film and breaking down a lot of the scenes and characters and just the awesomeness that of course in this film. Now, from my understanding, this film takes place a few weeks after the events of Night of the Living Dead. Like he's already said, this movie can also work as a standalone, so you don't necessarily have to have seen the original film. With this one, of course, we're at a television station and we're introduced to the character of Fran, played by Galen Ross, who works as a TV executive there. And she and her co-workers are working around the clock, getting the news out there about what is happening with the zombie epidemic. And of course, we see a couple of uh, TV presenter and a scientist debating live on television about the zombie outbreak and the kind of misinformation that we've been hearing or what the facts are. And it's kind of interesting, given the last few years with like fake news and stuff like that, this scene in particular like is still relevant, which is very surprising. It's not surprising to me at all. Because, as I said before, humans don't change. Yeah. So you're going to have, like, I can imagine, especially, like, this film certainly hits different mm. after what we've been through. But you can imagine if there's a legit zombie apocalypse, you're going to have the people out there being like, hey, this is fake news, this ain't real, there's no zombie, <laughs> I shot this in my brain. So, you know, it, it, it's, humans are predictable. Oh, they are. We definitely are. And then, of course, like, one thing I'm obsessed about with this opening scene as well, other than you also get a cameo from George A. Romero as one of the technicians in the studio, which I thought was very cool. But also, I'm obsessed with the weird wallpaper in this studio. It The very furry, shaggy carpet-looking red wallpaper in this film. It just 
I don't know why. Every time I watch this film, particularly with the new 4K restoration, it looks even, it's more brighter <laughs> in this film. And I'm kind of obsessed about it. Uh, what can I tell you? The interior decorating in the 70s was weird. <laughs> Especially if you like color- shag. Yeah. <laughs> it's the color Savini wanted to make the blood in this movie. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, because, you know, it's all bright red. And I love the color of the blood in this film because even though, yes, real life blood doesn't look anything like it does in this film, but it actually adds sort of the sort of comic flavor of the film. And Romero has stated that he kind of sees this film more of like a comic book movie rather than Night of the Living Dead was, which was much more grounded and grittier as a film. So we're also introduced to a traffic reporter named Steven played by David M.G., and we find out that he and Fran are in a relationship, and he has a helicopter and tells Fran that they, they're going to fly out later that night. She wants to stay so she can still work on the news, but he feels like this is a lost cause. We need to get out of here. But then we are transported to a housing department where a bunch of SWAT team members are about to storm a group of apartments. And of course, there, there is gunfights, there's battles, and also there's this one particular racist cop who is just having way too much glee about shooting uh, people of color and minorities left and right. And then, of course, we're introduced to the character of Roger, played by Scott Rittiger. And again, if I butchered your last name, please forgive me. What I love about this scene in particular is it's complete insanity, and you really kind of see it all from Roger's mindset, how everything is escalated to the point of utter madness and like it all this whole epidemic has been messing with people's heads and they just pretty much think they they can just do whatever you want and this scene kind of reflects that particularly with the one SWAT team member who is just absolutely just gone insane and is just killing people left and right whether they are zombies or not particularly with the scene where he just kicks in a door and just randomly shoots a person in the head and their head explodes. And then, of course, Roger tries to stop him. But then another police officer who is, has a, a mask on ends up shooting that other cop. And then there's all, more scenes going on here with Roger and other SWAT team members trying to deal with the zombies. And then eventually Roger goes off by himself to take a break. And then we're introduced to the character of Peter, played by the great Ken Forey. They sort of talk about the whole situation And then Roger mentions that he is a friend of Stephen and he, Stephen and Fran are going to be flying out later that night and even asks Peter if he wants to join them. And of course, we do get another scene where uh, the, the two men stumble across a room that's full of zombies eating body parts and they're all locked up in there. And they go in there and do a mercy killing to kill them all. John, your thoughts on this first section of uh, Dawn of the Dead? I, I mean, you said it right. It's it's all chaos. And mm. I think what's impressive about it is that it feels like chaos. Because chaos it has to be done very carefully to make it feel properly chaotic. You know, you mm. can't just, like, throw a bunch of stuff in there and hope for the best. Because it kind of winds up being dull. But this really feels like events are spiraling out of control so fast. And so intensely, I mean, yeah, we all are saying it, but this first section feels so much more relevant than it did even the first time most of us watched it. Because 
you know, when I watched it the first time, I'm like, oh, come on. Would anybody really be questioning the existence of zombies when you can see them wandering down the streets? And now it's like, well, maybe they would. Mm. And, you know, the whole idea of would cops really lose it like this and just start shooting their way through a bunch of civilians just because those civilians happen to be black or Latino? And now the answer is, yeah, yeah, they really kind of would. Wow. It's this just feels more and more real than it ever did. And it's it's awful. But at the same time, it tells you how much Romero had his thumb on the pulse of all of these social concerns. And and yeah, it's also just a great introduction to all of the characters. You know, you immediately see that uh, Fran is is very engaged in doing the right thing. She's the one who shuts down the list of rescue stations because it's become inaccurate. And they're like, but people won't watch if we don't have the list of rescue stations. And she's like, yeah, but you're actually sending people to their deaths. And you get the feeling that at the very least, Stephen would not have said anything. He'd have wanted to, but he'd have convinced himself not to. Mm. And uh, Marcus, your thoughts on the opening of this film? Ooh, man, a lot to unpack. I mean, you know, you guys have already, you know, mentioned it, and I'm going to definitely add to it. One thing I definitely love about this open is just how we are just dropped right in the middle of all of this from... The news station with Fran and Steven, you know, the pandemonium with the reporters and anchors and camera and engineers, everybody arguing, yelling, trying to report information. What's the right information? You know, where we're talking, where and, and, you know, we're just completely ignoring each other, but still like just uh, completely uh, immersed in all the chaos of what's happening with this outbreak. And what's and what's ironic about it is this is in the news station. Like none of these people are out in the streets. They're they're not, you know, on the countryside or anything like that. They're they're in they're for you know lack of a better word, they're kind of safe right now, <laughs> you know, from everything that's kind of going on outside. But even in their somewhat secure bubble of you know reporting the news and getting information out to everybody they don't know what the heck's going on either they're just completely caught up in on the on in the hysteria of it all and it's very interesting to see that filmed so meticulously but also kind of just significantly you guys you know uh stated earlier you know this <laughs> this is exactly what the fuck would happen and in fact it has so you know it's it's wild ha- uh, seeing a film start off like this in the 70s. It be so relevant to now in such a manner that it's really freaking scary. And then everything just is just kind of brought like even more just utter mayhem with, you know, the the cops and and SWAT trying to like clear out the tenant building, you know, people dying left and right, officers sh- like shooting people and shooting, you know, zombies and everyone climbing on top of each other and no uh, nobody knowing who to save who not to save people are you know everyone's colliding and and and, and just blood it, it's almost kind of unfollowable but it, it's still very focused if that makes sense like it's focused on all of the the bedlam that's no doubt sweeping across the city and it's 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 and that's what i mean like this is very like 
scary. It's an amazing scene that really like reestablishes not only like Romero's style and what he has to say about, you know, society at large, you know, because, you know, as I've, you know, a quote I've heard very long time ago, you know, when civilization ends, it ends fast. And we're really like looking at just how fast this is happening. And it's all very frantic and kinetic and, and uh, you know, it's it's such a, a downright, just terrifying execution. And this is just the beginning. That's what makes it so such a strong opening, especially when we get introduced to our characters. So, you know, I, I, I definitely was hooked, like right off the bat. We just got a report that half those stations have been knocked out. Get me another list. Sure, I'll just pull it out of my ass, right? Returning to life and attacking the living. I'm not so sure what to believe, Doctor. All we get is what you people tell us. And it's hard enough to believe. It's without... fact. It's fact. It's hard enough to believe without you coming in here and. You're not running a talk show here, Mr. Berman. You can forget pitching an audience the moral bullshit they want to hear. You're talking about a band. Franny, get the new list of rescue stations. Charlie's receiving on the emergency. Rescue stations. Half of those are inoperative as of now. Charlie, these are rescue stations. We can't send people to inoperative rescue stations. We've had all information on the air for the last 12 hours. Kill those old ones. Gibbons wants them. Kill them, Dick. How's Gibbons to see me? You have not listened. You have not listened to the situation for three weeks. What does it take? What does it take to make aren't willing to accept your solutions, Doctor, and I, for one, don't blame them. Every dead body that is not exterminated becomes one of them. It gets up and kills. The people it kills get up and kill. And Darbasi, your thoughts on the opening of this film? Yeah, there's not too much more I think I can add to what's already been said, but I think it's a it's a fantastic opening. It really sets the tone it sets the mood it sets what we're going to be in for and of course it introduces the characters like you say we've got the misinformation all the kind of crap going on at the sort of tv station stuff you know it is it it feels like it's become apparent that they're not going to be able to stay there so you understand that they have or you know there's the plan to leave when we go to like the apartment building the SWAT team's there. I think they're meant to be there for like drug dealers or something. And it's mm. like, mate, there's a zombie apocalypse. What the fuck do you care? Kind of yeah. shit, you know? But uh, they're actually there to move everyone to like state sponsored fortresses so um, that they can get everyone kind of away and under one roof and make sure that nobody's doing anything stupid like keeping zombies in their basement or something. Yes, which we find out the zombies are in the basement, but there's also the shootout with the the drug people 
might need to mention uh, John Amplis from Martin uh, plays one of the drug guys in yeah, the brown uh, face for some reason. It's like one of three roles he plays in the film. So <laughs> Yeah, and he, he was also the uh, casting agent for this film. Yeah, I know. That... I did not realise until this viewing, and I've seen it many seen this film many many times and dare dare i say this film for me is a five-star film Mm. and it's not my personal favorite romero film or the film i think is his best and i think that just attests that i think george romero is one of the best filmmakers that we've ever had that he's someone who I would say with like John Carpenter or someone you have so many like five-star classics but (laughs) what I could say is five stars might not be my favorite because there's like five others that I would say are five-star classics Mm. so um that I'm kind of blah 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 anyway mumbling along but yeah it's um yeah it's it's a it's a really good opening it certainly gets your attention when they're in that apartment building and shit's going down it, it it is chaotic it's like holy shit this all bets are off everything whatever is happening is gonna happen and we're getting these zombies they're just they want to eat so people were killing people over zombies and you just know this is just all out freaking chaos you just don't know how anything could possibly get better for anybody in this situation. Mm. So it's a very intense and purposeful opening. And of course, during this, we get to know Roger and uh, Ken Forey's character, Peter. So I always get names mixed up or I forget the names. Uh, And I think that's really important because these like at least those four characters are our guides for the rest of the film and their characters really develop as we go on and that's not always I mean that's a good thing in a film but is it the best thing in a zombie movie do you want to be heartbroken well George Romero says fuck yes you will be (laughs) definitely (laughs) definitely but I think one of the things that I take away from this opening scene just to kind of add my own little thoughts in there the, the opening scene where they're at the big apartment blocks kind of just showcases what type of gore you're going to expect from this film. I think the first time I saw the film and I saw that one zombie take that huge chunk out of his wife's neck, I literally was physically sick when I saw that the first time because it looked so real. And also, just to make it even more intense, uh, he takes a huge chunk out of her arm as well. So, And also, again, the head explosion and all the other scenes with the gore, like, it really kind of shows that this one's going to have even more gore and more violence than the first film. But also, one of the things, like, to kind of to show, like, the mindset of all these characters, particularly there's one little SWAT team member who has a run-in with a zombie the zombie just keeps crawling towards him and he almost looks like he's about to die at any minute, but he manages to kill it in the nick of time before he's bitten or anything. But even then, the whole situation just messes with him so much that he just reluctantly shoots himself in the head, even though he has not been bitten or anything at all by a zombie. So it kind of just shows the escalation of madness that's going on in the scene and how the pressure of all of it is starting to get to everyone. Like, it makes total sense that our main characters would want to get the hell out of there, which moves into the next scene of the film, where, of course, so Fran and Stephen are at the dock 
waiting for Roger to arrive so they can fly out of there. And Roger does come and brings Peter along. So they get inside the helicopter and fly off. But uh, they decide to run out of fuel, so they decide to land at an airport. And along the way, they kind of see the chaos that's happening in the countryside below. And I, I like these scenes because it brings back that, the memories of the posse scenes in the original Night of the Living Dead, when you see these scenes with these uh, country yokels just going around in groups, taking out zombies. So all that is there in this film. So once they get to a little airport and try to fill up the tank, Stephen and Fran go off and investigate a few things. And also Peter goes and looks for some more supplies. He runs into two child zombies, which from based on what I read, uh, Ken Foray didn't know that the zombies who were going to attack him were going to be kids. And so the look on his face is actual genuine shock because he was not expecting that to happen. And of course he kills them both. Fran and Stephen hear the commotion, so they run off. But then, of course, Stephen gets attacked by a zombie. Fran just is not sure what to do. Stephen keeps telling her to run off. She decides to stay. And another interesting thing, too, based on the information I've read and also have watched in documentaries in prep for this uh, episode, is that actually it was Galen Ross's idea for her character not scream at all in the course of this film because she felt that the character on the page was very strong and she felt that if her character kind of screamed at any moment in the film, it probably would have seen as a sign of weakness for the character, especially she's the lone female among these three men. So she pretty much doesn't scream at all through the course of the film. So Stephen manages to get rid of the zombie and they run back towards the helicopter. However, though, there's another zombie that's heading towards Roger that has the giant, the biggest forehead I've ever seen on any zombie ever. And there's a good reason for that because the zombie uh, climbs up onto a boxes and as it gets closer to the helicopter, half its head gets chopped off by the helicopter blades. And that is for real. They use real helicopter blades to cut off that half of that actor's head for the scene because, you know, they had to create a huge forehead for the character so they can create that effect. And then, of course... They get back in the helicopter, they fly off, they sort of keep flying around for a while, and again, they're getting close to running out of fuel, and that's when they stumble across the mall, so they decide to go take shelter. So once they land and get inside the building, they decide to pick up some supplies. So of course, during the course of this, Roger and Peter go and investigate, they look around a little bit, and of course, they have a couple different run-ins with zombies and that. And we get the kind of, what I also love about this film, like the original Night of the Living Dead, we do get some lead zombie characters. And I think uh, one of my favorites, of course, is the Harry Krishna zombie, who's the most well-known <laughs> from this it's film. such a prominent zombie that that's the one I always remember. And it's even got like, it's still got its tambourine with a with a cloth, like with its belt wrapped around itself. So it's still got its tambourine and everything. Definitely, definitely. Also, we do get a scene in here with uh, Stephen as he's down in the boiler room and he's being stalked by a zombie. And this entire sequence to me is definitely one of the most intense sequences in the film and the way how it's staged and shot because Stephen's almost got this kind of sense of paranoia that this zombie is stalking him. And every time he turns around, the zombie is either in the background somewhere shuffling along or he just misses it. And it actually is a pretty well-executed scene. And then as all this is going on, the uh, Harry Krishna zombie 
manages to <laughs> find the hiding spot of where Fran is. And then uh, luckily uh, Fran is saved from that one by the men. And then they decide, you know what? We're just going to, you know what? We got everything we need here. Why even bother going to any other base for shelter when we could just stay here? So they decide to camp down in the mall. And uh, Marcy, your thoughts on this section of the film? Yeah, it, there's definitely some very intense moments because they're, they're off in the helicopter, they're out in the open, so like anything could happen. And, of course, things do. There's just zombies everywhere. And you'd expect that that's how things would be. Like they're just going to be hiding out everywhere because if someone just drops dead, they're turning into a zombie anyway. So, And then the more people that they kill will turn into zombies and da-da-da-da, that's how it works, you know. So, yeah, you know that they're, they're going to run into zombies and stuff. And for sure, one of the most shocking, like, moments is the kid zombies and the fact that he has to shoot them. For some reason, because I have a stupid brain, after he shot the kids, all, all I could think of in my head was, oh, Dad, you killed the zombie Flanders. He was a zombie. And I'm just thinking, <laughs> like, saying to Peter, Peter, you killed the kid zombies. And then he'd turn around and go, they were, they were zombies? <laughs> I'm terrible, but it's they run like normal kids. They yeah, can run like zombies. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah, and also what's interesting too, they're the only zombies in the whole living. One of the few only zombies in the Living Dead series that actually run. Maybe when you're as kid zombie, you got like kid energy still. Well, I having like young nieces and nephews, I can uh, vouch for that. <laughs> they probably didn't realize they were actually zombies and still wanted time on you know the Nintendo or something. Yeah, they they were just nineteen seventy eight. They wanted to play pong, maybe. Yeah, they they just like were <laughs> in that room, just putting crayon, purple crayons all over their faces, and they're like, "Oh, somebody's here for us. Let's go have a play with them." And then Peter just shoots them. Yeah, exactly. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's very it's all it's all very intense, and you know, the, the, it, it does feel lucky that they get back onto the helicopter, and yeah. The, the blade hitting the zombie is very cool and you kind of expect it to happen, but then when it does, it's still like, oh. But yeah, of course, them finding the mall and you're like, well, this could be like a safe place. And of course, much like with Night of the Living Dead, how they get to the house, most of the rest of the movie is just going to take place at the mall. So we have that. And um, yeah, but once they're there, obviously there's zombies inside and, you know, there's all there's the good and the bad that they find in there, but it's then sort of when they're investigating the mall and stuff, and it's like, guys, you have to look everywhere. There's going to be a zombie. Don't go. You're kind of telling them because you don't want bad shit to happen. You want them to live, and they're just getting themselves in like really risky situations, which you don't want to see. But it's very, very intense. Mm. Um, and I, I really got to applaud the performances like throughout the film because I think the four main leads are excellent and all the zombie extras like I got to give it to them they just went for it that they, they are all very fascinating some of them have amazing 70s hair <laughs> as we mentioned the Hare Krishna one and it's still got like it's tambourine attached to it and you'd imagine like that's so what would happen like you could just turn into a zombie and you know, you could be in the middle of your, like, hair appointment and that's how you're going to wander around. It's <laughs> certainly, like, like, I feel like there's so much thought that went 
into it so much you can feel how dawn of the dead i think very particularly influenced the the comic and then the show for the walking dead which is really fascinating there's a lot of interesting like parallels and things that they would do but yeah just bringing that up i also <laughs> love the zombie who grabs the gun off the guys while they're trying to close mm. the uh the door and he Throughout the rest of the film, whenever you see it, he still has that gun in his hand. (laughs) (laughs) Which I'm, because that's the thing I find great about this film is that, and this was deliberate by Romero himself, he wanted to put a lot more levity in Mm. this film. So even though, yes, the scenes with the zombies can be very intense, especially when they're getting close to almost biting our characters, but he will throw in scenes where there's some oddball humor in there as well. And to sort of looking at my notes, again, back to the scene with um, Stephen in the the basement, I love the fact that in one of the scenes, and this was a very creepy shot, is when he's in the office looking over things, you actually see the zombie that's stalking him walking past the window, Mm. like the shadow of it. Mm. And it's just a very well-executed scene. And uh, Marcus, your thoughts? Oh, man. Um, Well... I definitely would, would like the well like to say um I liked how our characters are essentially already kind of connected to each other. Mm. You know, unlike the original where it was very much like random people like meeting and and coming together, you know, in this like horrific situation. Fran, Roger, Stephen and Peter being kind of all already sort of connected and then kind of growing from there as like a team was pretty interesting and another thing i liked and i know this was very very much like displayed when they first like stopped to get gas (laughs) in the helicopter is you know we get to see just how formidable roger and peter are and how i'm I'm not going to say inept but just kind of like how steven and Fran are, are really, really out of their element when it comes to how they like defend themselves or how they, you know, survive or anything like that. And I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I think one of, I, I know it wasn't intentional, but one of the funniest parts in, you know, this, this early stretch of the film is when Steven uh, hits that zombie with the, with the hammer mallet thing. And he literally just like throws his whole body yes. into the zombie. <laughs> <laughs> he really had no idea what he was doing. And I he, think that I just mean, perfect for that I, character. I burst out laughing because I was like, what the hell was that? You know, like he like he's a te- like, even though Steven, you know, uh, uh, is the pilot, he doesn't know how to shoot, like just awful shot. He he's fumbling all over himself and even though Fran I swear Fran was is much more braver than he is even though she still just doesn't really know to do and it's it's interesting seeing that in contrast to uh, Roger and Peter who know how to handle firearms they know like the tactical skills they know how to make the most out of their movements but yet in this situation they start to think that the zombies zombies aren't as much of a threat as they should be. Mm. So it becomes somewhat of a game to them, especially, you know, uh, Roger. At one point, he's literally just 
cackling the entire time as he's like running around shooting zombies and stuff. <laughs> Freaking Peter's like, hey man, focus, focus, focus. And he's like, <laughs> I'm like, dude, like just because you have the upper hand right now, like don't think that that can't change, you know? And it's such a difference, you know, talking about that scene in the boiler room and everything with Steven where he's fumbling all over himself again. He can hear like the zombie and he's turning and 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 and, and looking and jerking and just trying to like see where this zombie is. I don't know. I just found that element to be pretty interesting because it's again, it's another like catalyst for what we see in so many other uh, zombie, you know, content. You know, we have the people who don't know what the hell they're doing. We have the people who have different skills than that of like using weapons, and then we have like the people who are very like efficient uh, with and effective with like all kinds of weapons. It was just interesting kind of seeing that kind of play out once again, you know, in this in this film. And uh, of course, <laughs> when we get to the mall uh, again, you know, another product of its time, because uh, Roger and Peter are like, what is that? Oh, it's some kind of shopping center. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like, wait, they, they don't know what a mall is? Well, you got to remember, like, at least at the time, malls, again, you know, yeah, malls were only just starting to become a thing during the mid-70s. So, especially yeah. big malls so that, like that's that. That's why the mall was so big. You know, that's why the, yeah. the mall is so uh, enormous. It's, it's like it's like another freaking city, almost, you know? Mm. At this rate, in 20 years, people will have forgotten what malls were, and that dialogue will seem normal again. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. This this mall is oh man yeah uh, I looked it up uh, uh Monroeville Mall in Pennsylvania like the eighth mm -hmm. largest mall in the state and I'm like damn that's the eighth because that thing looks freaking enormous you know so <laughs> <laughs> you know so it's like okay this is the perfect place to have a, a you know a, a horror film so. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, well, that's the thing, like, George A. Romero, like, how he got the idea for this film was that a friend of his was working at the mall, and he showed him around and all that, and he even got shown some of the more secretive areas where people can easily hide out of that. And then that's when the idea started brewing to make this sequel and having people coming here to survive a zombie apocalypse. So, But, John, your thoughts on this section of the film? Well, I think this sets up a lot of uh, really important things that we're going to see come back in the third act. This, you know, the big scene to me is where Stephen tries to help Peter out with the zombie, not the zombie kids, but the zombie that shows up right after the zombie kids. Yeah. And he winds up shooting directly at Peter. Peter is downrange and he just is like, he has to fling himself to the side to avoid getting killed by friendly fire and the way he reacts is to point out to steven just what it feels like to have a gun pointed at you by pointing his gun at steven and that sets up mm -hmm. this whole dynamic of you know really toxic masculinity i know that's a very modern term but it's right there in this movie peter feels emasculated in front of fran or i mean steven feels emasculated in front of fran and he is going to spend the rest of the movie trying to prove his manhood in some extremely stupid and dangerous ways that, you know, spoiler alert, kind of get a lot of people killed. 
and you also see that yeah there's the you know fran is is feeling very useless because the men are all running around with guns acting very macho and she is frustrated by the way that they are treating her like this stereotypical damsel in distress there's just all of this dynamic is being set up for later and it's being set up in ways that are very tense and exciting in and of themselves and yes every scene every like the airstrip feels like something they're lucky to survive the the first foray into the mall feels like something they're incredibly lucky to survive it all feels so tense and dangerous in a way that a lot of movies aren't willing to go to and and one other thing i did want to mention because we didn't really talk a lot about the rednecks hunting zombies yeah but my favorite thing about that is at one point when they're shooting uh, they accidentally hit a car and cause it to blow up. <laughs> and Romero puts in the exact same musical sting he used in Night of the Living Dead when Tom and Judy's car exploded. I, I did not even notice that. And, uh, and having watched Night of the Living Dead... Yeah, and it's weird. Like, I've been watching Night of the Living Dead a lot for this podcast. I should have picked that up, but I didn't. I'll notice that the next time, John. It is really funny. It's that but sting. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's what I mean. Like, you could definitely tell Romero was, like I said it before, he kind of saw this one as more of like a comic book film compared to uh, the first one. So he, you could definitely tell he's bringing that playfulness to this film, particularly with the scenes once they're at the mall and having to deal with the zombies. And kind of uh, to talk about the zombie you just... That was mentioned before after the kids once of course that's the famous zombie that was used for all the posters of all the films so we've got to give that zombie a shout out and it's kind of funny for a zombie that only literally appears on screen for like a couple of seconds it has become one of the most iconic ones in film history and also we do once then we're back at the mall with the gang and we kind of learn some new information we find out that fran is pregnant and that she doesn't want to be treated as useless. So she pretty much tells the guys that I want to learn how to fire a gun. I want to learn how to fly that helicopter. I want to be involved with all this. As all these scenes are kind of happening, we get probably one of the most bizarre scenes in the whole film in which like Peter offers to give Fran an abortion. And see, I thought about this. Yes. Now, the zombie apocalypse at this point, like, might have been a few weeks or something. So mm. you'd imagine maybe they're trying to recruit people to help stop them. So maybe his character was originally an abortion doctor and then he joined the SWAT team. Maybe. Maybe. That's the only what? way I can explain that. <laughs> oh, I can explain it. No, oh, Roe v. Wade was not very you know it was it was pretty recent when this movie came mm. out abortion had not been legal for very long it's entirely possible you know we kind of get a hint in the novelization that peter grew up in a poor neighborhood and joined the police to kind of you know get ahead in in life and it's entirely possible that he was doing this as a favor to people before abortion was made legal, that he was a kind of an underground abortion doctor and it wasn't his job. It was something he did as a service to his community because it was something you had to do underground back in those days. 
What oh, do you definitely. mean back in those days? I feel like half of America <laughs> has reband abortion these days. Yeah, <laughs> I'm still trying to adjust to that mentally. And it's yeah. Awful. Are we sure we're not living in 1978 right now? But that's beside the point. But, <laughs> but also we do see the characters. They decide, you know what, we need to get rid of all the zombies. So they go around either shoot the zombies, get rid of all the bodies, and then eventually they decide to lock up the front doors by by using trucks. So uh, Stephen, Peter, and Roger get into the helicopter. They go out to an area where there's a whole bunch of trucks there. So they drive them back and forth, well, different trucks, of course, to board up the front doors of the mall so that way the zombies can't get back in. And there are a lot of really intense scenes in this film, particularly with Roger, as he has so many close calls with about with him about to be bitten by a zombie and like the risks that he's taking. And I like the fact that as likable as Roger is as a character, you kind of also get the sense of that he's definitely a bit of a manic presence and that he's he likes to take risks and and also having all these close calls is starting to affect him. And as we see in that scene where basically Peter, when he's in the truck with him, basically has to give him a stern talking to and said, you know what, you need to calm down. And, you know, along those lines. So they're still doing the trucks thing. They get it all set up. But then Roger realizes that he left his bag back at the previous truck. So they have to go back and get it. And sadly, during this scene, that's when the character Roger gets bitten by a zombie. So even then, they managed to lock all the zombies out. And after that, our main characters decide to basically just enjoy having a lot of fun living inside the mall. And I'm not going to lie, this is probably what I would do if I was living in a mall, like just do everything, whether it be just grabbing every item, eating all the different foods, and just enjoying it and lapping it up. And this is definitely where the satire of what George A. Romero is diving into with this film on consumerism and us being obsessed with things is throughout the this montage of scenes where we see these characters just enjoying this kind of hedonistic lifestyle of being in the mall. And and also, I love the fact that every time we go back to the room that they're hiding out in, like, it's decked out like it's a house. There's furniture <laughs> everywhere. And you can tell they're having a lot of fun in these scenes. And also, there's some interesting things, too. Like, there's a scene where they find a gun shop and get a lot of weapons out of there so they can use. From what I understand, uh, that gun shop was shot separately from the mall because the mall itself didn't have a gun shop, so they had to shoot it at a different location and kind of transport those scenes into the film. And as all this is going on, uh, Roger's uh, health is declining as he is starting to succumb to his wounds. Peter, Fran, and Stephen, they try their best to try to help Roger by giving him medication. And, but unfortunately, he is just getting sicker and sicker. And then... Uh, sadly, and definitely without a doubt that one of the most tragic scenes in this film is Roger dies and Peter sits in the room with him to wait for him to come back as a zombie. 
And we get this look on Roger's face. And I was like listening to an interview with the actor who plays him about his thought process in the scene. It's like when he wakes up and his eyes kind of go back and forth, like a sense of confusion of what is happening to him. And he actually said, uh, Scott Renninger, and again, if I butchered your last name, please forgive me, has stated that he kind of said in that scene, like as he's just waking up, it's almost like a self-awareness with the character like oh i'm a zombie now but that as soon as he sees peter that's when he's like in full zombie mode and then of course peter has to take him out so it's definitely a very sad scene after all these different scenes where the characters are just having so much fun in and lapping it up inside of this mall although the only thing i have a question about with this montage is when Peter and Roger are in the bank and they're just showing off all the uh, money to the camera that's there, the camera takes a snapshot of them. I'm like, this is a weird thing for me to say, who's taking photos of them in the uh, bank? But that's beside the point. But, um, <laughs> but Randall uh, Stephen, obviously. Yeah, obviously, yes. <laughs> but uh, John, your thoughts on this section of the film, but also on how the film handles uh roger as a character in the scene particularly with him succumbing to his wounds as a zombie oh man i have so many thoughts on this section starting with the fact that you know romero got his start before he directed feature films he made commercials mm. and you can really see that influence in the way that everything is shot in this scene to emphasize luxury and desirability and everything looks, all the food looks so tasty and all the clothes look so stylish. And he is really not just selling, but overselling how much you want all this stuff. And it's interesting to me because there's three mall scenes that I think work kind of in tandem to convey Romero's final message about the movie. And this is the first one where it's characters who are looting the mall, but they're treating it like it's shopping. Mm. And, you know, they just they just happen to be not paying money for anything. And so it allows you to be like kind of, oh, well, it's not too bad what they're doing. It's not too bad that they've made this safe space and they're holding it just for themselves and gorging themselves on all these luxuries because, well, I mean, they're they're being polite about it. And I think that's very interesting. And I just want to put a pin in that for later. But the other thing is how little they enjoy any of it. Like, it seems like they're having fun, but every time you start to think that, oh, they're really enjoying playing video games or they're really enjoying dressing in these fashionable outfits, it cuts back to um, Roger and he's looking a little bit worse and he's getting a little bit more confused and he's looking paler and sicker. And you just realize, no, this is all meaningless to them. This is a distraction from the fact that their friend is dying and they can't do anything to help him. And it just becomes awful, even though it's superficially so perfect. And I, I feel like that is a big part of this movie's message. Oh, God. Oh, Jesus. What? My bag! I left my goddamn bag and we get a truck! <laughs> All right, Trooper. You better screw your head on. Yeah, come on, come on, come on. Let's go. I mean it, man. Now, you're not just playing with your life. You're playing with mine. Now, are you straight? Yeah. 
Yeah. There's a lot to get done before you can afford to lose me. Oh, definitely, definitely. And, but uh, Marcus, your thoughts on uh, this section of the film, but also Roger's fate? You know, it's strange. Like, you know, we get so much of what Romero is trying to like convey with this entire section you know, of, of the film. I mean, the entire movie is a statement, but this particular section, we get so much of what he's trying to say about, you know, how the zombies are fundamentally like still around the mall and they're still walking around the mall as if they don't even know they're zombies. You know, we, uh, we still get our foursome taking what they want, establishing, you know, a, a, a home for themselves and enjoying all the fruits and labors of, you know, their location and everything they did to make it a lot more fortifiable and, you know, secure. It's all a very, somewhat of a, a collage of so many different things, you know, you know, consumerism, capitalism, and so many of the tropes and, uh, elements that we've seen so often during the decades, you know, with every other feature and every other project and every other content that is drawn from this is literally the blueprint in a lot of ways. It, it, it was, it's great, like, kind of seeing that kind of unfold, you know, with, you know, this foursome. I mean, you know, we get the discussion about, you know, Fran terminating her pregnancy. Do you want to have a child during the apocalypse, do you want to bring a new life into a world where civilization has pretty much been decimated? You know, do uh, do you want to have all of that responsibility and 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 connection to a, a, a living being that you created when life right now is even more fleeting than it was before? That amongst like so many other things when it comes to, you know, them getting supplies and them uh, getting more weapons. And, you know, I I liked the part with <laughs> the gun store <laughs> because 
once again, we are given a nice little glimpse into our nation's obsession with guns. Because even though Peter and Stephen are getting weapons so that they can survive, once again, with everything else that they're doing, there's a certain glee to what they're doing. There's a certain like, oh, great, we're we're obtaining this, and it's it's it, and it's fun, it's fantastic. If anything, they're using the situation and then being able to get whatever they want as a way to mask themselves from how dire and hopeless this situation actually is, which in a way is why Roger's deterioration is so tragic because it's a huge and very harrowing reminder that this is not a good situation. This is not, <laughs> this is not a, a, a call to get whatever we, whatever we want. Everything outside of their little bubble that they've secured for themselves, like the earth and civilization and society is literally eating itself. Roger's death and him just wasting away in front of them is another huge reminder of how fleeting this all is and how the hopelessness of it all and the, the, the fact that they can't do really anything to save their friend really puts into perspective, can they actually save themselves? That's what I very much liked about like this section of the film, because we not only get what we as people do, we buy whatever we want, we eat whatever we want, we try to do whatever we can in order to hide or at least like numb the real suffering that we go through or the real suffering that we see out into the world every single day. And sometimes it's, you know, great. And then sometimes it's just a very flimsy Band-Aid on the huge gaping wound of our psyches. I very much enjoyed what Romero was saying with this section of the movie. Hmm, definitely. And uh, Marcy, your thoughts? Yeah, again, like, there's probably not too much I can add because I think you've all... um added quite a lot and some really interesting things to this section um as yeah like when they go out to get the trucks like that is some really intense stuff and I think by this point you kind of get the idea that um Roger is being a little bit too careless he is getting a little bit cocky Mm. and that ultimately does lead to him getting bitten my question is though if they had quickly gotten to him and amputated from where the bites were, would he still have turned? Well, that is a good question because you brought that up to me the other mm. day, Marcy, because he was bitten on the leg and also bitten on the arm. And I guess it's possible, like, if they did it right away before the infection would have spread. Yeah, because how long would it take for the infection to spread? Like, we don't know. And it makes, I don't know, I always wonder this in in zombie films, and I have uh, well before The Walking Dead uh, did it as well. I'm like, if you cut off where it's bitten, would you still get infected? And maybe that was just my optimism because, uh, you know, from the first time I watched it, like, Roger just became my favorite character. So when he's bitten, it's absolutely devastating. So in my mind, it's like, how can I save Roger? So I I just always thought that was an interesting little one. Like, you know, because he's bitten on the arm, he's bitten on the leg, but you could have done like from the elbow amputation and from the knee amputation. Hmm. Maybe, I don't know. Yeah, well, 
it is an interesting theory and like i mean it's possible like if we if they did it in time but again i suppose like this is early days yeah i mean we don't we don't we don't know that's just me overthinking um yeah and everything but yeah that this sort of then after he's bitten this kind of leads to that calm before the storm where they do kind of have this fun going around in the shopping mall and it's meant to be oh they're having a good time the end of the world doesn't necessarily need to be boring we can do stuff but you know it's a distraction a lot of what not a lot of but I feel like parts of what Romero may have been trying to say uh especially with like there's all this stuff in the shops but aside from maybe one percent of things in there it's all completely utterly useless yeah and that's pretty much consumerism in itself most of what we end up buying is kind of utterly useless and it's very materialistic and I I feel like there's a, a bit of that in there because we're seeing like why are you trying on fucking fancy watches there's no purpose to that there's no purpose to that anyway but I mean in a zombie apocalypse you're gonna be like, hey, zombie, I got a Rolex. Like, no. But I, I feel like it also, uh, sorry, I can't remember who mentioned it, but something about eating ourselves up or something. And yeah, that's exactly like what humans do. Like, once again, and we've definitely seen this over the past few years. And these are themes that are very prevalent in films of this sort. And I think we definitely got that a lot in uh, Night of the Living Dead as well. It, the zombies aren't necessarily the ones you really need to be worried about. Oh, definitely. And I think that leads into <laughs> the the other the other part. But I, I will say, like, you know that Roger's death and turning into a zombie is inevitable. Hmm. When it does happen, like, for me, that's one of the most devastating scenes hmm. uh, in a film because you really don't want that to happen. You want all four of these people to survive this. And once he's turned and he's gone, it's almost like, is there really any hope left of Mm. any survival? But of course, we're going to get to uh, a whole lot of other shit in this next section. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's definitely, uh, without a doubt, an interesting point. And to kind of add on to that, with uh, Roger's death, it kind of changes the entire mood of these characters because we do get another section of the characters kind of living their lives within the mall. But you can definitely tell that it doesn't have that kind of quote-unquote sense of fun as it did previously before Roger uh, died because we do have a scene where Fred is just sitting there applying makeup in front of a mirror. And also we have a scene where... Her and Stephen are having dinner at a restaurant and Stephen decides to propose to Fran, but of course she turns down his uh, proposal. And then the next shot of them is them in bed. And it kind of how that shot is done. It almost looks like a painting, like even though they're next to each other in bed, there's a vast distance between the two of them. And of course, uh, during this time, they decide to bury uh roger in the mall garden and don't ask me why for some bizarre reason i found the image of that hilarious for some reason there's bur- nowhere <laughs> to put a body yeah without the risk of zombies coming mm. in so that's where you would i mean it is kind of comical and i think that's yeah. kind of 
almost the point because there is this very dark humor throughout mm. this film. Mm. But where else are you going to fucking put him? Yeah. Like, but that's also, just kind of the dire situation of it. I'll, I'll definitely. But one stickler for me, I, I haven't brought up yet, but maybe it's just me. But the amount of, even though she's pregnant and we see her get heavily pregnant as the uh, film goes on, because this, of course, takes over the course of a few months. Uh, Fred still continues to drink wine and uh, smoke a lot. So I mean, it was the seventies. <laughs> Did we really have that correlation with pregnancy, alcohol, and uh, smoking? Because I'm not sure. I think that felt it that flowed. I think more into the mm. the eighties than it was yeah. in the seventies, where people were still having their wine and ciggies uh, while pregnant. And I think we're probably like amongst that last generation who's parents did that unknowingly well like oh shit maybe i shouldn't have done that <laughs> yeah definitely definitely <laughs> but also we do get uh scenes of fran learning how to fly the helicopter as well and like i said learning how to shoot so and that's the great thing about this film. they both learn how to shoot yeah well that's the thing i was going to about to say is that <laughs> yeah. fran and uh steven they do have pretty good arcs in this film because they learn how to defend for themselves and of course like in steven's case sometimes his emotions get the best of him but fran on the other hand is able to kind of keep that all in check but of course as all this is uh, going on they're being spied on by a biker gang that is headed by tom savini that and... fucking Tom Savini, I'm going <laughs> to spank your ass. Except it's not headed by Tom Savini. Oh, well, Tom I Savini have... is like the second in command. The head is Rudy Ricci, ah. who, fun, fun trivia, he was going to be Ben. Oh, really? Until, yeah, until Dwayne Jones gave that audition that blew Romero away, the guy who mans the radio in this movie was going to be Ben in Night of the Living Dead. Well, that, that, that actually, my mind is kind of blown by that. Thanks for that, John. <laughs> That's pretty cool. But still, Tom Savini and his crew need a big fucking spanking from me. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair on that front, uh, that's the thing. Tom Savini, like, stands out so much in, among the bikers. And not because it's Tom Savini, because his performance is just so magnetic in these scenes that, Anyone could, who's watching this film can be a little confused, like, oh, he's the leader of the group, even though he technically isn't. You kind of feel like he would be, and it almost it's almost sad we didn't get more, like, just <laughs> batshit insane Tom Savini performances, and I, I'm thankful as much as I hate the bikers in this movie, and it, they're there with, with a fucking purpose. I, I get that, but, like... um. He he has had a few other memorable roles, but it just would have been cool to see more. Oh, right? definitely. Yeah, so, yeah, they've been spying on by bikers, and, of course, they radio Stephen, Fran, and Peter to think, oh, oh we need help. Uh, we Can we get some supplies? But the gang are like, no, nah, nah, these guys are full of shit. We don't trust them at all. But I also got to mention, during all these scenes, there is scenes where they try to find more information of the radio and the television and they see more debates going on about the epidemic. And one of the debaters looks so much like Francis Ford Coppola. It kind of freaks me out a little bit. I was, I was um, going to say, like, is that Francis Ford Coppola, like, debating <laughs> zombies on the TV? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad I wasn't the only one who was like, 
Why does it look like Francis Ford Coppola? I was going to say he's got a little mad since working on Apocalypse Now at that time, but that's beside well, the point. Um, yeah, it checks out though. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> the bikers decide, you know what? They're not letting us in. Let's just go raid the mall anyway. So Peter, Fred, and Stephen decide to get everything prepared just in case if they get attacked. Yeah, the bikers just manage to break it inside. The zombies start come flooding in and the bikers start stealing everything left and right. And again, another thing with the sort of the consumer themes of the film, they just grab stuff that they don't need, like jewels and diamonds and They, and all they grab everything and they want to destroy everything. These guys yeah. come in like no regard for anything at all. Like don't like mind that they're going to, yeah, don't mind they're going to let in the zombies and whatnot and put themselves in danger but then yeah. they just grab and destroy everything and it's like this is where you're meant to be surviving you need places like this to hold up in why the fuck are you coming in here doing whatever the fuck you want and then you're like but that's how people are we saw mm-hmm. these kind of peoples over the last few years they they don't give a shit and they're there with a purpose for that purpose fuck me dead did Stephen King write these guys or some of these bullies because that's what it felt like and I know that George and Stephen uh were friends and their collaborations are fantastic so maybe he uh <laughs> so, so like in his in his mind they're like hmm I think I've got a bit of Stephen King in here oh yeah definitely <laughs> but also I think what's interesting about the biker gang in the sequence is they think they have everything in control until they don't which and, is straight away because they never do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And also you start to feel for the zombies in these scenes because they're just going around killing them left and right. And also at a certain point, there's a pie fight as well. <laughs> and I know that's your favorite scene. It's like, I mean, it's a, waste a zombie of... apocalypse. Why would you not just go get also, cream pies and pie them? Also, but I guess that depends on the cream pie. Yeah, Ta-da! I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for bringing that up in this episode, Sorry, sorry. Um, <laughs> Why did I get asked here again? <laughs> I was going to say about the pies, because I need to talk about the cream pies for a second. They've been in that place for months. When they go in there, there's still there's still pies being cooked in the <laughs> I'm thinking, like, the food is not being wasted at all. It is not, like, exactly going off or anything like that. But that's beside the point. I always feel so sorry for the the zombie woman who gets mugged for her jewelry. It's oh like, my god, you yeah. are dead, and that's not the worst <laughs> thing that happened to you today. What the <laughs> fuck was that? Holy uh, crap! Oh jeez. Also, oh, I also got to mention the nun zombie who features a lot in this film. That's also another zombie that I also loved as well. But you're right; you really do feel for the zombies in these scenes because of what's happening to him. And like you say, John, you think, oh, being a zombie would be the worst thing that would have happened to him. <laughs> but no, they're like, it's basically like another version of grave robbing in a way. So, which it, is- It's really yeah. horrific with like how yeah. they treat the zombies that, uh, again, is this like, uh, <laughs> were we channeling some Stephen King? Because- <laughs> They do these things to the zombies, but the zombies are fucking hungry and you let them in here. Mm. Uh, if you think things yeah. are going to go well for you, you fucking idiot bikers, uh, your guts are going to come out of your body and be mm. 
Indeed. Deservedly uh, so. Exactly. Exactly. Do, do you do you think that might have been? I mean, do you think that might have been a, another statement that Romero was making about how people will take advantage of those who are either sick or dead or dying in order to like have more? I don't know. Uh, it kind it of could, felt like it that could was... definitely be, but I think there's more weight to that argument after you watch the amusement park which i guess was unreleased for so long and i think that was he made that before this oh yeah definitely yeah and because of what that sort of is trying to say about how uh, specifically older people are treated you could definitely have some weight to that argument that he he's having he's saying something about just the shitty treatment of of certain mm-hmm. people so oh for sure yeah. And uh, as all this is going on, Stephen is definitely not impressed by these bikers looting the place. And he uh, says, and I put this line down, it's ours, we took it, it's ours. And then, of course, he goes a little crazy and then he gets shot in the process. And pretty much like Peter has to like fight off against the bikers as well. And all, all this is going on, Tom Savini is just having it up left and right. Killing one zombie with a machete, which is also an image that's also been used for a lot of the posters of this film. Of course, during a specific moment where he's having a a gunfight with Peter, he gets shot and then he goes falling off the the balcony. And this is pretty much where everything has gone chaotic. Steven is trying to hide from the bikers in the elevator, then see that he's there, they shoot up, and again, he gets shot and more injured. He and Peter decide to go back to where Fred is, and as he's about to get out of the elevator, that's where the zombies come in, grab him, and bite him, and he manages to shoot a few of them, knock a few out, but he's ba- but once the elevator is closed, he's just badly injured. As all this is going on, the zombies now start to overrun the bikers and the bikers are starting to get killed off one by one. And then we see a lot of great gory moments in these scenes, especially with one biker getting their guts ripped out and everything like that. Although I I mean, they, they kind of had that revenge coming, the revenge of the zombies. Oh, definitely. Definitely. (laughs) Although I had to laugh where basically one biker decided to steal a mannequin for some bizarre reason. What was it? The one biker who kept trying to take his uh, blood blood pressure, blood pressure. And, oh, also, and also God. doing it while zombies are coming towards him. Those were really new back then. Like, I remember them coming in at drugstores and grocery stores and stuff and just being fascinated by them. And that was only like a year or two after this movie came out. So, I, I mean, obviously timing could have been better, but I kind of get it. <laughs> well, we did say that... Yeah, well, another exactly. Well, we didn't say that the bikers were the smartest bulbs in the in the in the light no. bulb store. So <laughs> uh, the, the the bikers really represent a certain type of people that we've seen pop up over the last mm. few years. I'm leaving it at that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Also, yeah. also another thing I forgot to mention throughout this whole film, and it's te- and I'm surprised it's taken me this long to mention it, is the score by Goblin and Dario Argento. 
It is a fantastic score. Although it kind of mixes between their score and also the music in the mall, which plays a lot throughout it. And uh, <laughs> and like the score in particular is just fantastic in this film. And so once the, uh, the bikers leave the mall, and we go back to Stephen in the elevator, the elevator opens up and that's when you discover now that Stephen is a zombie. So he's just wandering around. And also he manages to find the wall, which they actually built earlier so they can block it off an entrance so the zombies wouldn't find where they are. So this is another thing where I think is interesting that Romero would explore more as the franchise would go on is the intelligence of the zombies, but also how the zombies, as it's sort of stated earlier in the film, that have they have some sort of memory of the things they used to do when they were alive. So it's obvious that even in zombie form, Stephen would remember where he and the others would hold up. So they break down the wall and start heading towards where Peter and Fran are. Fran suggests that they need to get out of there, but Peter, he's tired, he's had enough, and he's said, you know what, you go on, I will hold them off and you get out of here. And we think to ourselves as an audience, oh no, this is going to be like another dark ending like the original. So Stephen comes in, Peter sees him and shoots him in the head. And then of course the other zombies come in. Peter goes off into one of the other rooms to hold off until the zombies find him. And then of course Fran goes up to the helicopter, but she stays up there thinking like maybe Peter might change his mind. But of course the zombies somehow who know how to climb ladders are heading up into the roof. It's to part of the, old, or the uh, former memories of how yes. to climb a ladder or exactly. how to open doors or how to go up escalators. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. How to get exactly. fired in the face. <laughs> exactly. And, um, <laughs> but Romero is like, no, we're not going to be doing the ending of night of the living dead again. We're going to give this one a bit more of a happier ending. Peter, finds that spark that he's like, you know what? I want to live now. So he goes out, fights the zombies left and right, manages to get up onto the roof, shoots a couple of more. Then he gets onto the helicopter and he and Fran just fly off into the sunrise. And I guess it's kind of, it is made ambiguous what happens to these characters after the events of this film. But I do like the fact that compared to Night of the Living Dead, which has one of the most bleakest, nihilistic endings of any film in history, Romero was like, you know what? I want to give this film a bit more of a hopeful ending. However, if you know the production of this film, that wasn't always the case. This film was originally going to have a very dark ending in which Peter does get killed. And uh, Fran, realizing that there's no hope at all, she uh, puts her head into the helicopter blades and gets decapitated but they decided Jeez. to change that halfway during production of this film now the ending that ending was never shot but you could definitely if you look online you can find the dummy that they were working on for the frag character to get decapitated by the helicopter scene so oh, they use it um the, yeah they the do head yeah. That shot off at the beginning in mm. the raid on the tenement that's fran's head just kind of redecorated a little oh yeah like, um, it's not only that, because uh, Tom Savini uses the same dummy multiple times throughout the whole film. 
whether it be for head explosions <laughs> or for other things, because Tom Savini is just a makeup and gore genius. Yeah, that's pretty much where the film ends. And then we kind of get the end credit scene with the zombies now taking back over the mall with the Muzak playing. So it's a very sort of like funny scene, but also at the same time, kind of putting in the Romero's final message and statement about consumerism in these scenes. And I love that one of my favorite things about this film is every time I watch it, is the scenes where we see the zombies just walking <laughs> at the uh, the ice skating rink. Those scenes in particular, I always find very funny. But but yeah, that is uh, Dawn of the Dead. And uh, Marcy, your thoughts on this last half of the film? Yeah, the final act of the film is very intense. A, a lot of stuff obviously goes goes down. Yeah, I, I, I don't really want to talk more about the, the bikers and how much I hate them. Uh, they ruined everything. You ruined a good thing for the, for these people, you fucking idiots. But, yeah, it's I think it is also very heartbreaking when, oh, God, I'm getting everyone's names mixed up. Stephen, his ultimate death and then return as a zombie. I think that's that's one of the very memorable shots as well from the film um, is when that happens in in the elevator. And it's, again you just don't want to see this happen to these people and I feel like Stephen is the one that kind of grows on you throughout the film a bit more uh, because he is a bit of a shit to start with but yeah you you kind of do I think when you first see the film you're you're expecting this very dire ending but when you get like Fran and Peter ultimately escaping on the helicopter but then you know where can they go are the same things going to happen? Uh, could Peter have been bitten, not know, and turn while they're in the helicopter? It, I think it's a good ending. It, it leaves you maybe somewhat optimistic, but also somewhat pessimistic because you just don't know or you don't think that mm. there's much left. But it is a really well done third act. It's so intense. The It, it, it really is chaotic. Yeah, George Romero had a message and he certainly delivered that message. But uh, I don't think we actually mentioned uh, through the discussion unless it was when I stepped out. Um, the famous line, or well, couple of lines in the film yeah. where they're like, you know, about the zombies, like, what the hell are they? And Peter's like, well, they're us. They're, they're us. And that's that's essentially it. And he mm. says the when there's no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. Uh, it's just a very powerful um, part and I think that little conversation they have uh, really speaks a lot when it's like well they're us and it's something that Romero would continue to explore with the rest of the series and how the zombies are no different from us but also as the series would go on his allegiances would change from being with the human characters but now starting to sympathize more with the zombie characters which you de definitely get a sense of that in this film. And I'm glad you brought those lines up because I completely forgot to, and I feel very <laughs> bad as a host. But yeah, those lines in particular are some of the most famous of the film. And with the, when there's no more room in hell, that, that line in particular, of course, was used for as the official tagline for the film mm -hmm. because it's such an iconic line that everyone associates with this film. <laughs>
after us. They know we're still in here. They're after the place. They don't know why. They just remember. Remember that they want to be in here. What the hell are they? They're us, that's all. There's no more room in hell. What? Something my granddaddy used to tell us. You know Makumbo? Voodoo. Granddad was a priest in Trinidad. He used to tell us, when there's no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. To kind of add on to what you just said, Marcy, with the ending, whether it is a hopeful, happy ending, but also kind of ambiguous about the fates. I think pretty much the last lines of the film where uh, Peter asks Fran, oh, how much fuel do we have? And Fran just says, not much. And Peter's just has that look of, all right, and that's about it. Mm. Like that's, he's like, oh, well, it is what it is. But, you know, he's like accepted about what's going to be happening from here. But uh, Marcus, your thoughts on this last section of the film? Well, I mean, you know, in keeping with, you know, that famous quote, I almost kind of feel like uh, another like extension of what Romero was saying is, yeah, you know, there may not be any room in hell, but, you know, hell is right here because that's exactly where all these characters are. You know, as much as they want to kind of hold on to the constructs and, and societal norms that they were accustomed to before everything got destroyed, that's not the world anymore. It's a whole new world. And if anything, this last part of the film really just kind of brings home what this you know new world is gonna gonna have, what you're gonna have to contend with. You know, you're gonna have to contend with you trying to find a place to hide, a place where you can try to live, and then you have to run the risk of someone finding out where you are and trying to take everything that you have and destroy everything that you tried to build build for yourself. There's this tiny little sliver of civility or happiness in, in this hellish, hellish world can still be snuffed out and not and not by the zombies, by people, because people are oftentimes the most dangerous thing that other people have to deal with. You know, as much as, you know, we talked about how stupid the <laughs> the um <laughs> the bikers are and believe me, they're fucking stupid. If anything, they're just like the extreme ex example of our foursome because they they do the exact same thing that Fran, Peter, Roger and Steven do, only they just do it a lot more, you know, uh like ridiculously <laughs> you know pointlessly you know vandalizing looting robbing you know rioting uh being just an, an incredibly just disassociated dis dissociative from like the situation because they just want what they want it really does keep in mind that everything about this about this this last part is about everyone doing what they're meant to do based on their own personal choices the only difference is like you know with the zombies they don't have much choice anymore you know they're just being and it's it's very interesting kind of like 
seeing that. Plus, I definitely want to point out that I feel like by the time this movie ends, like all of our characters kind of reach the end of their arcs in a in a very significant way. You know, Fran thought that she was the most useless and she didn't know what she was meant to do. But yet she's the one who saves her and uh, Peter from getting overrun. Peter is the one who takes charge and is, you know, very much the man with the plan and with the with the termination. But he loses all of his hope when Roger dies. But yet he when confronted with death, staring right back at him, he decides that he wants to keep living. He wants to keep fighting. He wants to keep trying to find something in this world worth holding on to. And as sad as it is seeing Steven die, you know, because he had like I, he had like one of the, the worst deaths in this movie. He still went out like a freaking boss to me. Uh, early Steven would have been cowering in the corner, uh, probably shooting at the wall and probably hits himself in it with a ricochet. <laughs> you know, but this Steven falls into the elevator, gets overrun by zombies. And even though he takes like bites and, and scratches and everything like that, he fights them all off and kills them all before he dies. Even though Fran didn't see that in, in of itself, that just shows how much he grew as a survivor and a fighter and everything like that. As sad as his death was, the fact that we got to see his growth in that way was very, very compelling. This an entire, you know, last part was definitely a, a, a representation of, you know, it's always darkest before the dawn because the, our, our trio lose everything, but yet there's still hope that they're going to fight another day. They're going to obtain something in this new world and they have all the skills and determination to make it happen. And I found that to be a very inspiring ending because as <laughs> I was really nervous <laughs> when <laughs> Peter was sitting there waiting for these zombies to walk up to him because I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm not going to have another Ben. I know, don't do that to me, you know, but luckily that didn't happen. So <laughs> I was very, very happy about that. And, you know, just the whole thing, very masterfully done, very poetic, you know, bittersweet, but also just a, a fine finish to this movie. Definitely, definitely. And uh, John, your thoughts on this last section of the film? Well, I think it's interesting that you said that, you know, Stephen grew as a character because I always thought the ending of the movie is an example of his fatal flaw coming back to bite him in the ass. You know, if they had hmm. been smart about it, if they had just decided, you know what, we don't need all this stuff, and they'd slipped back into the hidden portion of their base, let the looters loot, let the zombies in, and lived in the civil defense shelter, they all would have lived. But instead, because he has to show what a big, tough man he is, because he has to take on a hundred zombies and by the way they do call them zombies yes i was gonna uh, bring that up um peter mentions uh the z word in this film yep but because he has to show what a big strong man he is he's the one who sets his own death into motion and ultimately destroys them all for anyone as a viable safe place it, it, you you already mentioned it kind of but i did want to point out that those 
that the second looting scene is a parallel to the looting scene of the foursome. You know, mm. they're taking stuff they don't need. They're grabbing watches. They're putting on stylish jackets. But here it's just more obvious because the the bikers are big, dumb, cartoonish bad guys. And so you see, oh, yeah, why are you, why do you even want that? You know, there's that great moment where the guy grabs the portable television. He's like, what are you going to watch on that? <laughs> and then you have the third it's not quite a looting scene, but it's the zombies. And the zombies are the only ones who are content to just be in the mall without taking everything. And I think mm. it's interesting that you see that kind of stripped down to its most bare element of capitalism. Just the desire to be surrounded by stuff and be content. And mm. I think that is so brilliant. And I just, I love everything about this final section of the movie i love the way it all comes together in this huge explosion of violence i love the the cream pies and the the mugging and all of the weirdness that's the thing about romero is he had this mall space for months at a time so long as he left it in good shape in the morning when they were ready to open for business he could just keep shooting and shooting and shooting and so he let people improvise you know their zombie parts you see up on the roof, the zombie with the gun trades his gun for another gun. <laughs> you know? All these little weird things that were just quirky and fun, and he just kept shooting and shooting until he had a mountain of footage that he liked, and then he went in made this brilliant movie out of it, and I love it. Oh, definitely, definitely. And what's interesting about this film, when it was finally released, the NPAA wanted to give the film an X rating, but Romero felt like that would be kind of a major problem for the film because at the time, the X rating was mostly used for adult pornographic films. So he felt like it would have been too much for this film. So they decided to release the film unrated and it actually did pretty well. And surprisingly, based on the information I have read, out of all of Romero's dead films this is still the most profitable one which actually is surprising because i figured like land of the dead would have been his highest grossing one but surprisingly it is actually uh the original dawn of the dead that's still hit the biggest grossing out of all the films in the franchise and it's hard not to understand why because this movie is a dead set classic in every way i guess that could be a wrap on our discussion on the original Dawn of the Dead. Marcy, your final thoughts on the film overall? Yeah, I think it is a classic. It's certainly one of my favourite films of all time. And again, just having a discussion, like there's different bits and pieces like we all pick up or have taken away from it. And I think that's just the beauty of a film like that is you can find different things when you watch it or have hear different opinions or things that people have noticed and it makes you think about it again or want to revisit it again I think it's just one of those very special films that that's out there and again George Romero was a hell of a filmmaker at Dawn of the Dead for me is as I said it's a five star classic and I watch this movie if you haven't like Marcus did yesterday (laughs) (laughs) definitely definitely and uh Marcus your final thoughts on the film oh man I mean I feel like we could talk so much about this movie we probably could be here for 
you know, six or seven hours because there's still so much to discuss and kind of, you know, go back and forth on. And I, I love that about this movie. I, you know, I really do. You know, as far as like a horror fan or a cinema fan, you know, you tend to kind of surmise how such a like a staple as this was received back in its day, which, you know, successfully, you know, and how many ideas and elements and references and tropes were, you know, categorized and conceptualized and re-energized, you know, throughout the years. And I know I commented and talked about that a lot because I really could not help but to kind of absorb this film on that front. You know, not strictly from with the horror genre either, you know, you know, cinema in general, amongst all that, you know, the, the recognition and the thought process and the overall like residence of this really takes form. You know, Dawn of the Dead is implicitly that film, one that's like etched in time and cemented in a manner that's very undeniable and very powerful. You know, as much as this was my first viewing, you know, I could really absorb all of that into this, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a big way. It was very startling. And, you know, honestly, even with that, you know, illustrious status, you know, this story is very suspenseful, you know, intense, scary, <laughs> funny as hell, and really just holds like the true moniker of zombies and the undead you know and 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 society and everything like that you know you could go as far as say this is a, a an easy cautionary tale mixed with you know historical and, and 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 reverent commentary it's such an uncompromising reflection on how feeble civilization and society is when it comes to the things that we want things that we we we, we always will want you know the things that we want to always contain and always obtain and just how dangerous we can all really become when we're faced with something unknown. And, you know, seeing that, like, that that foundation, like, we've seen it with this you know, pandemic and, and everything else that's happened before that. It's how easily, you know, human nature can be just cracked and, and, and riddled with blood and, and aggression. How its true colors can be shown. And in this world, it's it's shown even more so because it's not bound by, you know, rudimentary fallacies like law order and creation and it's all been replaced by death and and survival and insanity i mean we could we could make a, a viable argument that so much of this was ahead of its time and you know it was you know practical effects the locales you know the passion that went into it thanks to romero's talent as a filmmaker writer you know everybody that he worked with the, the actors fantastic you know the the you know, the, the people who worked on the on the zombie makeup, all of it really just kind of came together in such a way that you could talk about this until the cows come home. But what makes this film, I believe, such a classic is its mirror that it holds up. One that not only has echoed throughout the cinema and everything, but the populace, something that is very entertaining, but also very vital in showing us so many things about ourselves without sacrificing any kind of artistic integrity or purpose. I mean, sure, it could be looked at as something very grotesque or, I guess, schlocky or maybe even trashy, but that's not the only thing that it has. That's not the only uh, power that it possesses. It's a story that shows us just how innovative films can be and how no matter what, they can 
always be a reflection of us. And in a way, that's the that's the power of it. That's the power of cinema. Because cinema is us. And we are cinema. Yeah, I guess you can you can say I, I like this movie a lot. <laughs> and uh, John, your final thoughts on the film. Well, I, I was I was thinking about when you said, you know, people thought of it, uh, could think of it as trashy and grotesque and stuff. This this was a horror movie that Roger Ebert gave four stars to. He mm. he considered it to be a major cinematic landmark. And he said he would, you know, defend it to anybody as a a serious statement about the human condition. So this was, you know, this was not a movie that was misunderstood. This was a movie that everyone saw and went, oh, yeah, this is really saying something important and powerful. Mm. And it, it just blows my mind that this came out the same year as Halloween and only mm. a year before Alien. Like, imagine being a grown-up horror fan and getting those movies just within that short succession and just having your mind blown clean open. <laughs> it, it's a movie that, you know, once once it came out, horror was never going to be the same again. Movies were never going to be the same again. And yeah, I mean, it's it's iconic. It's wonderful. And, you know, if you gotta bootleg it to see it, thanks to Richard Rubenstein, mm. go ahead and do it. I'm just saying. Well, there are ways out there to watch <laughs> this if you if you can't get a copy of this film. But I would definitely suggest if you do have a region-free player, definitely pick up the Second Sight Blu-ray or get the 4K set since that is region-free itself. So, yeah, it's worth getting that set because it is a phenomenal set but i guess for my final thoughts overall i mean all three of you have just pretty much said everything about this film but i yeah i guess the only thing i could really add overall is this is a fantastic film it is a brilliant sequel but as a standalone it is a just an overall terrific film not as a horror film just a, a general film altogether and you could definitely tell between the 10 years between making Night of the Living Dead and this film, Romero has honed in his craft as a filmmaker. And I love the roughness of the original Night of the Living Dead because that really worked for the type of film it, it was. It, this one's definitely more polished on the filmmaking front, but you could definitely tell at the same time that Romero is putting all of his passion into this film and bringing so much to it to make it, even though, yes, it is a sequel to Night of the Living Dead, it has its own identity as a film. Hence why I keep bringing up that it has more of a comic book style tone to it. It has more humor. It actually has characters who are gelling together and doing what they can to help each other out rather than with Night of the Living Dead, where the characters kind of fall apart and not banding together to face this threat. But also, it has so many memorable moments, great performances from its cast who are just excellent and just really well-crafted character arcs. The makeup and gore is amazing. Yes, I know Tom Savini has issues with how the zombies look because how he kind of, they were done on set in terms of how they look with their color is very different to how the final film shows it because they look like they got blue faces, but it really adds to to the film and again that sort of comic book feel to it it's just an amazing film through and through and 
it doesn't surprise me that this film has been a major influence in all of cinema in a lot of ways, not just the horror genre, just cinema overall. So if people out there have not seen the original Dawn of the Dead, definitely seek it out. It is an amazing film. Uh, like John said, uh, it might be a bit harder if you live in uh, Australia or the US, given the whole right situation with producer Richard Rubenstein, but... But definitely go seek it out if you can. <laughs> it's just <laughs> worth it, without a doubt. But uh, yeah, that is a wrap on this episode of Bead vs. The Living Dead. I almost said the title of the spinoff show, Bead Steve vs. Camp Crystal Lake, because I've been recording a lot of episodes for that lately. And I hope all of our, my listeners enjoyed this first episode for 2024. And thank you, Marcy, Marcus, and John for coming back on the show and talking about this fantastic film with me. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. You know me, I keep coming back, so. <laughs> indeed, indeed. <laughs> but uh, before we wrap up tonight, uh, Marcy, where can people find you on the internet this week? Yeah, if you want to find me or have a listen to the other podcasts that uh, I do, you can check out supermarcy.com. And that has all the podcasts and you can hear Bede and myself along with uh, our other guests and co-hosts on a number of shows such as the 2B Tuesdays podcast, the King Zone, the Osploit cast, podcasters of horror and have I forgotten one? Uh... I'm losing my mind a little bit. <laughs> Don't we just have way too many podcasts? I think Marcy. so. Uh, yeah, those shows, uh, Bede is not my co-host on the King Zones book club podcast, but uh, he was on a recent episode anyway. Uh, so you go to superbarsy.com. You can find all the links for that stuff there. The handy link tree for the super network, uh, which is the link tree slash super network. Uh, it's got all the links to the website, to all the podcasts, uh, to all the socials. So you can keep up to date with uh, the super network as well as the podcast feed and I do together for that and uh yeah after dark with super marcy and adults only podcast is also available uh on podcast streaming platforms and stuff and i think the link tree for that is uh after dark network you might have to double check but i think that was it and uh finding me personally just on the socials i'm super marcy on pretty much everything and i'm super underscore marcy on letterboxd awesome and uh marcus where can people find your work on the internet this week well uh you can pretty much find me on facebook and letterbox you know marcus will turner and you can find me on instagram and twitter at ego critic demise and of course you can Find me on the Super Network with you lovely people. I swear I will get some reviews to you guys soon enough. <laughs> no problem. Kind of slacking on that, but I will. And uh, of course, you're going to see me right back on here with Bead versus the Living Dead sometime soon. So, <laughs> well, definitely, definitely. And all of you, in fact. So, <laughs> which I'm excited about. But, uh, John, where can people find you on the internet this week and also listen to your podcast, Half Price Horror? Well, the podcast is on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, pretty much anywhere you get a podcast. You can just do a search for Half Price Horror and you should find me, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio. It's a Spotify for podcasters podcast. So, it propagates to all the sites. I'm going to be tackling Land of the Dead in the not-too-distant future, so 
if you enjoyed this and you just want to skip ahead a couple of movies, you can do that. Um, on social media, I am half horror on Twitter. I am half price horror on Blue Sky, Letterboxd, and Tumblr. On Letterboxd, my wish list, it's got all the movies that I own but have not yet covered for the podcast. So if you want to drop me a line, you can say, hey, you should cover this very soon, and I'll see if I can fit it in. <laughs> and if people want to find me personally, you can find me on Twitter, Blue Sky, and Letterboxd under B. Jemide as Wine That Word. And also you can find all my work over at supermarcy.com and as well as all the awesome podcasts that I co-host with Supermarcy over there. And as well as you can find this show on all podcast streamers everywhere, along with the spinoff show, Bean and Steve versus Cam Crystal Lake, via the same podcast feed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other podcast streamer you listen to. On social media, you can follow this show and the spinoff via Twitter and Blue Sky under BeadVSTLD, and as well as the Facebook page under Bead versus the Living Dead. So, yep, that is the wrap for this episode of Bead versus the Living Dead. And once again, thank you for everyone for tuning in to this first episode of the year. Come back in two weeks' time for episode 30, in which I will go back to Dawn again, but this time looking at two different cuts of the film, in which I will look at the Khan extended cut version of the film, and as well as Dario Argento's zombie recut of the film. So stay tuned for that one in two weeks' time, everyone, and I'll see you all then. See you, everyone. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Beat vs. the Living Dead. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your podcast player of choice. Keep up on all updates of the show on the official Twitter account at BeadVSTLD. The music for this show was brought to you by Denno. See you next time, everyone. Goodbye.